0: I'm super excited today, and let me tell you why. When I was very small, um, I come from very humble beginnings, and growing up in Missouri, we didn't have a lot. We had two working parents, but um, very modest income. But one of the favorite things that we had at almost every meal was a cold glass of Kool-Aid. Anyone old enough to remember Kool-Aid? Okay. Well, when I think of Kool-Aid, I would always ask my mom if she would allow me to make the Kool-Aid because I wanted to make sure it was extra sweet. And so when I think about the sweetness of my Kool-Aid, I think about a lady that I fell in love with many, many years ago, and uh, it's my wife, Loretta, and I love to refer to her as the sugar in my Kool-Aid. So I'm going to ask if my sweetheart, Loretta, if she would just stand right now so that you will see, you know, i married way up. I married way out of my league. If you're turning your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, just for a few moments today, we're going to speak from this passage. Many of you guys are probably familiar with the name Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps is considered in almost every circle of the planet the best swimmer the best olympian that has ever lived i mean every time we turn around we would see him on that top step receiving his gold medal he's won more gold medals than any american olympic olympian in history i mean accolades after accolades after accolades praise after praise after praise of all of his skill and his accomplishments. But maybe his greatest accomplishment just happened this past 2016 in the Summer Olympics. Because for the first time in his storied career, he was allowed to lead the United States procession into the Olympic Village. And what made this so special for Michael Phelps is that after all of the years of all the eyes being on him for all of his accomplishments, of all the things that he had done, for the first time in his career, yes, eyes were all on him, but they were on him for a totally different reason. It had nothing to do with his swimming ability. It was all about what he carried. Because for the first time in his life, he was given the privilege that was far greater than anything that he had ever done in his career. He was given the privilege of doing something, actually carrying something that was even greater than himself. You guys may know what I'm talking about. He had a chance to carry the American flag. And what that symbolized that for the first time in his life, Michael Phelps had to recognize that just for a brief moment, it's not going to be about me. It's not going to be about my skill. It's not going to be about my talents. It's not going to be about my ability. It's not going to be about my accomplishments. For the first time, just for a few minutes, it's going to be about something greater than me. It's going to be about what I carry. One of the most treasured things that any athlete could ever be asked to do to carry something that represented something far greater than himself. He would represent, he would carry something that was far bigger than himself. He would carry something that symbolized America. And as I think about what Michael Phelps did, I think about the passage that we're going to talk about this morning. Michael Phelps had a chance to actually carry something that was, that was very special, that was, that was very treasured by those that gave him the privilege. But it was not about him, but it was about what he carried that made the moment special. And guys, the Apostle Paul, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he talks about the very same thing. I want you to notice chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, but I want to begin at verse 7. Now, one of the things I do at the seminary is that whenever you're teaching Bible students, you have to tell them, be very, very careful to make sure that when you read a passage, that you always keep it in its context, because here's the danger. If you take a passage, a verse of Scripture, and lift it out of its context, then you can make it say almost whatever you want it to say. And unfortunately, there are false preachers today. I'm sorry to say that there's some false teaching. And what happens is that they'll lift the passage out of its context and they'll make it say whatever they want it to say. And so what we're going to do, we're going to read verse 7, but then what we're going to have to do to understand, to unwrap verse 7, we're going to have to see it in its greater context. So let me read verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live... We're always giving over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Please notice verse 7 again. Paul says, we have this treasure. Underscore that. Make a little note somewhere. This treasure, because we've got to see what this treasure is. What would be so treasured? What would be so special that Paul would sacrifice so many things? As a matter of fact, just so I can help you a little bit, turn over just a few, a few um, chapters to chapter 11. Chapter 11, let me just read for you just a litany of things that happened to Paul. Chapter 11, beginning at about verse 23. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Am I talking like a madman? For greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil, and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak am and i am not weak who is made uh, who is made to fall and i am not and i am not indignant if i must boast i will boast of the things that show my weakness that god and the father of the lord jesus christ he who is blessed forever knows that i'm not lying Damascus, the governor under King Aretas, who guarded the city of Damascus, in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. When you look at those verses and you listen to all the things that Paul endured, what would make a guy go through all of this pain? What would make a guy willing to endure suffering? What would make a guy being willing to be beaten? It's because Paul recognized that he had been commissioned. He had been called to carry something. He had been called to bear something far greater than himself. But the question is, what was it that was so great that he would be willing to endure such punishment? Well, now, let's go back and see the greater context. Let's go back before chapter 4, verse 7 of 2 Corinthians. And look at chapter 3. Because chapter 3 really helps us to understand what it is, to underscore what it is that's so treasured. And I want you to notice, back in verse 7, Paul says, whatever this treasure is, it's in clay jars. Now, just for you to know, what Paul does, Paul reaches and he grabs something from, uh, from the Roman army that he knew that his audience would understand. Here's what would happen. When the Romans would go into a people... And they would defeat them and they would take the spoils of those people, the gold and the silver and all the jewels. And then what they would do, they would come back to their particular place and they would place this, these, these treasures, these jewelry in, in simple, um, um, not beautiful looking, uh, very ordinary, very fragile clay pots. Actually to hide it because you would think if someone's going to come and rob you and, and, they, and, and they want your jewelry, they want your best stuff, they're going to look for maybe some place that you have set aside. Maybe it's all glass and it's, you know, it's all beautiful because that's where you keep your special stuff. No, what they would do, they would take their best stuff and put it in this, in, in, in this location, in these jars that are super insignificant because people would think, well, there's no way that they're going to put their best jewelry in some just basic thing. Think of it this way. The clay pots in Paul's day will be almost like the styrofoam little things that we go to the store and we get something from the hamburger place and we put it in there. You guys know what I'm talking about? So there's no way that you would take your beautiful uh, jewelry, uh, that you would take all your gold and silver and put it in a white styrofoam thing. There's no way. And so Paul says, look, you and I are just like the white styrofoam. You and I are weak. You and I are frail. You and I really have in and of ourselves no significance, but it's what we carry that makes things special. It's what that has been deposited in us that makes us special. And so let's see what it is. What is this treasure? What is this spiritual gold? What are these spiritual jewels that make it so special? Chapter 3 verse 1 says, are we beginning to commend ourselves or do we need a some do. Letters of recommendation. You need to understand that Paul was dealing with a group of people that had come into Corinth. Paul established his church. You can you can find that out in the book of Acts about chapter 18. He established Corinth. But while he was there and after he was gone, some people came in, some some false teachers trying to teach some false doctrine. And what they did when they came in, they had these letters of recommendation to prove, okay, I'm worthy to be able to teach you. And Paul says, I tell you what, you know what? I don't even need a letter. Uh, my team doesn't even need a special letter of recommendation. Look at what he says. He says, Or do we need, as some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Verse 2 says, For you yourselves are our letters. He says, Corinthians, we don't need a letter because all we need is your lives. All we need is your transformed lives. If people want to know if we have credibility, if people want to know that we have integrity, if people want to know that we've been called, all they have to do is look at the transformed lives. That's proof positive that we've been sent by God. Amen. Amen. The way that you really want to know if a church has really got it going on is not how many people they have, how many lives have been changed. Unfortunately, we live in a culture, and I was a pastor for almost 40 years. I know I look only 25, but I was a pastor for almost 40 years. <laughs> and every time I would meet with a pastor for the first time, I automatically knew what the first question was going to be. He was going to introduce himself, and I introduced myself, and then he going to say, well, how many are you running? Well, I knew what he meant. How many people do you have coming to your services? And could I tell you this? And don't, don't, don't tell the pastors that I said this. Pastors lie. They lie. They inflate the numbers. They do, they do, uh, because what the numbers that they give are the people whose names are on the road, but not the average attendance on a Sunday morning. So if we're averaging 800. We say, "Well, we're running about 15, we're running by 1500,." And why is that? Because for some reason, we've got it twisted. We think that spirituality what, has something to do with numbers. And I submit unto you, I know churches right now today that are much, much larger than your church, but they are spiritual babies. They are spiritual anemics. Because if your lives haven't been transformed, if you're not making disciples, that's not really a church where God smiles upon. Amen. Amen. If you come in and you leave the same way that you entered, something's wrong with that. So watch what Paul says. We don't need any letters. All we have to do is just look at your lives. He says, verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on what? The tablets of the human heart. Make a note somewhere in your notes. The book of Jeremiah said that there was coming a time where God was going to do something different. Many of us remember God said, Moses, come up to the mountain. I'm going to do something special. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my law. And what did God do? God wrote on tablets of stone exactly what he wanted Moses to tell the people. The only problem was, was is that what he gave them to do, he knew they could never fulfill. He, could, knew, he knew they would never be able to do it. And so think about this. Once a year, it was called the Day of Atonement. The people would come. A priest would come in their behalf. The people would come with with their sins, and they would come with their animals. And it was the priest's responsibility to kill the animal and come to this place. He could only do it once a year, and he would pull back this curtain, and he would enter this place called the Holy of Holies. And this place was so sacred. This place was so special that what they did, they tied a rope around the priest. And just in case the priest didn't do it properly, if the priest didn't do it properly, if he didn't divide the sacrifice exactly like it was supposed to, God would kill the person on the spot. And since no one else could enter the room, that was the whole purpose of the thing being tied around his way so they could pull him out. But when he got in there, what he did, he sprinkled blood on this thing called the mercy seat because that's where God said, I'll come there, and when I see the blood... It will atone. It will satisfy my demands for sin. Here's the only problem, guys. It only lasted for a year. So they had to keep going over and over and over and over and over again. And here's what's deep. There were no seats in that special place called the Holy of Holies because the job of the priest was never completed. But the Bible says when we get to the book of Hebrews, Jesus... Being our high priest, when Jesus gave his life, when Jesus sacrificed his blood, the Bible says Jesus, when it was all finished, he sat down. And he said from the cross, tetalasia, it is finished. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Father, I've done exactly what you wanted me to do for the first time ever. The sins of mankind were not just temporarily dealt with, They were permanently removed. And that's why, guys, I'm so glad because all those animals, think about it, there's a human problem, and how can an animal help a human problem? That's why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats and rams could never take away sins. And so when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he sees Jesus, he says, oh, my goodness, behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. He was the first person in human history that could utter those words to take away the sin of the world. And Paul says what God has done, he has deposited in us. This message, it's a message of reconciliation. It's a message that will transform the lives of millions and millions of people. And here's the real answer. Here's the real question, rather. When people see your life, do they see the treasure displayed? Do they see a transformed life? Or do they see you just like they saw you? Before you trusted Christ. Watch what Paul says. He says, verse 4 such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Watch what he did. Who has made us a competent, competent to be ministers of a new covenant? Old covenant. Temporary, new covenant, permanent, old covenant, condemnation, new covenant, righteousness. As a matter of fact, Paul even talks about it. Look look here. Look what he says. Verse, the latter part of uh, verse 6, who has made us competent ministers of new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 7. And if the ministry of death, oh my goodness, that's the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if the Spirit, for, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And here's what many of you guys may, may not have known. The day that the Lord called Moses up to the mountain, as Moses was in the presence of the Lord, he didn't know what was happening, the glory of the Lord began to be poured out. To be, it was radiated on Moses' face. And so when Moses came down from the mountain with the, with the law, the people saw Moses' face. He didn't know it was glowing, but there was this glow because he had been in the presence of the Lord. And the glow was so bright, because when they heard the thunder and the lightning and all those things, the people said, Moses, hey, look, look, we don't want to talk to God because of what we just saw. Tell you what, you talk to God for us, Uh, because he seemed to be pretty powerful. And so Moses comes down, his face is shining, his face has this glow, so he's talking to the people. But here's something that Moses noticed that happened. The longer he was out of the presence of the Lord, the less of the glory. So every time he would go back up to the mountain and talk to the Lord, he would take off this veil. Because what he did, he put this veil over his face, not because he wanted to hide the glory from the people, but Moses recognized at some point that the glory began to fade. Think about this. It only faded the longer he was out of God's presence. As long as he was in God's presence, the glory was strong. So he puts on the veil so that the people would know that the glory is fading. And the Apostle Paul, he he, he seizes upon this. Watch what he says. He says here again, verse 7, Not the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Now, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Make a note somewhere. Make a note. If you have been in the presence of the Lord The Lord gives you that sense of boldness, not better than, not looking down your nose at other people, but because you have been in his presence and he is changing your life, it gives you boldness to proclaim him. See, listen, guys, we have a responsibility. We have an obligation because we have been in his presence we have been redeemed. We have been reconciled. We have an obligation to go back to a world who is living in darkness. We, are, we live in a world with no moral compass, with no direction. They are in darkness. Their eyes are blinded. They cannot see. And you and I, at one point, God pulled back the curtains. He pulled back the veil so we could finally take a look at who we really are. And remember, when you first really saw yourself as you really were, did you like yourself? Say no. As good as you were, as nice as you were, the problem was you were comparing yourself to other people and not comparing yourself to God. When you compare yourself to God, since he's perfect, then we don't look too good. Watch what Paul says. We're bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For this day, for this, to this day, rather, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. Will you make another note? If you have been in the presence of the Lord... You should no longer be living a life in bondage. You should be living a life in freedom. Here's what it took me many, many years to understand. Be who God made you to be and not try to be who people think they want you to be. Be yourself because guess what? It's much easier to be yourself than to try to be someone else. Amen? Amen? Remember I told you I was a pastor before? And, and this is going to shock you, but, but I just got to be honest with you. It took me almost 30 years of pastoring to come to the realization that I, it was okay to be me. For all those years, I tried to be someone who I wasn't. I tried to preach like someone who I wasn't. I tried to teach like someone who I wasn't. I tried to dress like someone who I wasn't. But I finally came to the realization God loved me enough, Jesus loved me enough to die for me What? Just who I was. And he loves me as I am. Amen? Amen. So it helped me with my self-esteem issue. Because listen to me, I, I grew up in a, in a time period, and, I, and I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to beat you up, but, uh, you know, I grew up in the time period in the 60s, and uh, there were all these racial things going on. And, and, and I not you glad that none of those racial things are happening now in 2017. <laughs> I grew up in the 60s, and this this racial thing, and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and you have, you notice my skin's kind of dark, and, and, and so um, uh, there was a time in the 60s where, you know, people, I was referred to as a Negroes, and, and then there was a period that I was referred to as black, and I really struggled with that because I, didn't, I saw my shoes as black, I didn't see myself as black, but I struggled with that whole thing. And so, you know, I dealt with that whole thing and uh, then, you know, I would look at myself and then, you know, those people whose, you know, their hair was very wavy and their skin was very fair and, you know, they were always elevated. They were in the movies and, and in the magazines and so I just had this thing about my color, had this thing about my hair and so I tried to change my color, I tried to change my hair because I just didn't feel good about myself until I came to the realization, guess what? God picked my parents for me. God picked my lips. I know they're big, they're like soup. I know that's all right. Hey, some of y'all shooting your lips trying to get lips like me. Come on now. Trying to get lips like me. I got mine naturally, all right. <laughs> So God had to help me to recognize. Willie Bolden, God chose everything for you. He chose where. He chose who. He chose when. He chose how. And as a result of that, he loves you just as you are. Start learning to love yourself. And Paul says, look. He loved you to the extent that he would take something, his most precious treasure, and he would deposit that treasure into your life. What is the treasure? It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ. What's the good news? The good news is that men were under condemnation for all of sin and all have come short of the glory of God. But because of what Jesus did, we have an opportunity to be set free from the bondage of sin. And now he's given us a ministry, and that ministry is to set other people free. Let me conclude by saying this: I want you to notice verse 14. He says, "But their minds were hardened." To this day, again, when old covenant is read, the veil remains. But verse 17. The veil no longer remains for us. There's freedom. So Paul says, verse 18, and we are with unveiled face. Behold, the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. What? From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Then he jumps into our verse. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful saying something to you that really it really encouraged me March the 29th 1848 the people that lived near the Niagara Falls woke up that morning to something that just blew them all away they woke up to complete silence Niagara Falls Stopped flowing. March 29th, 1848. And people were really worried. I mean, they said that people were going through and they were finding artifacts from the war of 1812. People were nervous. What is going on? What's happening? I mean, all of our lives, all of our grandparents' lives, everyone's been used to hearing this roaring sound, almost like a subwoofer of the, wall, of, of, of the water flowing Well, scientists weren't sure what happened, but after maybe four or five hours, the falls began to flow once again. And so they began to think what may have happened is way upstream, there was some huge iceberg that temporarily stopped the flow of the water over the falls. When I thought about that, I thought about something that many of us have done many times in the past. You remember those times when you went out to the backyard or the front yard and you got the water hose and, you know, you you pushed the little lever thing and no water came out? And many of us, we knew right away what was going on. We knew that somewhere in the hose it had gotten crimped, right? Many of us, we know what I'm talking about, right? And so what do we do? We go to wherever that is and we uncrimp it. And once we do that, then the water flows freely through the hose and squirts wherever our destination is. Here's what I want to leave you with today. Is there anything in your life that's crimping the flow of the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you to others? Because God has supernaturally called you, He's given you what you need, He's given you the gifts that you need, He's given you His Word. He wants to use you to transform other people's lives. To bring them into the light, the very light that you're experiencing every day of your lives. But the only thing that can stop the flow is something in your life that's crimping the flow of the Holy Spirit. But once the flow is there, I promise you, you can do even far greater things than Michael Phelps ever imagined. Because one day, as he stood on those top steps over and over and over again, guess what? One day you'll stand on some spiritual steps and you'll hear these famous words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. And I even got a perk for you. I got a mansion that I've been working on. I've always wanted to live in a mansion. And I'm going to finally get a chance to live in a mansion. And I told my wife, and you can't live in mine. You have your own mansion. Is that what he said? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you I'd go. And guess what? I'm coming back to receive you unto myself. So while he's gone, guess what we need to do? Get to work. Let the flow of his spirit flow through us to others. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us this morning. A transforming ministry. A treasure in simple, fragile jars of clay. You love us just that much. You love us so much that you would be willing to deposit something far greater than the American flag. You've deposited in our lives the gospel, the new covenant that sets captives free, that binds the brokenhearted, that brings about redemption and reconciliation. Thank you that because of the work of Jesus, your wrath has been satisfied. And now... As we put our trust in what he's already accomplished in our behalf, we can experience what the Bible says is new life, a transformed life.